G'day, it's Phil Edwards, Vision CEO here, with a quick invitation to become part of this amazing beacon of hope called Vision. Together we can put our love into action to help people of all kinds build or rebuild their lives on the truth of God. Please consider the part you can play during our upcoming Visionathon appeal, remembering that it's your support that makes Vision possible, including this podcast. Audio on demand from Vision Christian Media. Well, resolution number five is for all of us because we move now from what God is doing in us. We're still there, but now we move into the, the fatherhood of God. I don't know of any other passage of scripture anywhere in the Old Testament that is a better example of God loving a man. And resolution number five goes like this. God will send you encouragement when you grow afraid and weary or faint-hearted. Today. 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 Today with Jeff Fines, pastor, apologist, and Bible teacher. Hello and welcome to another episode of Today with Jeff Vines. And today we continue with Pastor Jeff's Unpossible series. Over the course of this series, Pastor Jeff is explaining seven resolutions found in Judges chapter 6 and 7. Today, he's up to resolution number five. In these verses, we see how God sent Gideon great encouragement when he really needed it. Here's Pastor Jeff with today's message. So I'm in Judges chapter 7, verse 8 through 15, and uh, I want to start with somewhat of a familiar story. I've mentioned before I had a father who was uh, very rigorous, very disciplined. He was like a military man. The rules around the house were very clear. We knew our father loved us. We had no doubt about that. He provided for us. In fact, my dad worked 70, 80 hours a week to feed four boys, came from a very poor family, worked very hard. But he also had a lot of respect for what he called the objective word of God. I think that's the first time I heard that word, that it is the word of God and you and I live our lives by it. We don't question it. Now we might study it to figure out the application of every truth. But my father believed that the Bible is the word of God and it forms us, it shapes us, our character, our integrity. Those are important things. And my father had rules around the house. You just didn't disobey. And if you did, there were consequences. Not because he was the big bad house boss, but because he knew He wanted you to go the right direction, and sometimes you need a little encouragement to go that way. Our minds and hearts aren't bent toward doing automatically the right thing. My father understood that. He understood his job as a father is to nurture and care for us and instruct us and, yes, discipline us when we got out of line. I remember when I was 16 years old, I've shared this before, and I won't go into great detail. I did something that was very bad, and I was very embarrassed by what I had done. I knew there were going to be significant consequences. And strangely enough, my greatest fear was my father finding out. Again, I knew my father would not approve of this, and I knew I was in danger of severing that relationship. This was that severe. And I couldn't sleep all night trying to figure out what I was going to do. Again, I knew there was going to be a penalty to pay for my actions. And finally, I I couldn't bear it anymore. So I just got up the next day and I went to my father and I said, I got to talk to you. And I'm sure I was shaking and I was telling him what I had done, expecting my father to drop the hammer uh, and to say, okay, here's your punishment. Instead, my father, 
seen that I had done wrong, moved over close to me, put his arm around me, said, okay, son, you've made a huge blunder and there's gonna be a penalty to pay, I know. But then he said to me, I'm gonna walk with you through this darkness and we're gonna come out on the other side, better people for it. And I remember thinking at that point, that is not at all what I expected my father to do. I expected my father to drop the hammer and basically I was actually concerned. My sin was so, was so severe that I almost, I started thinking about maybe I can't live here anymore. Now I don't need to go into that. All I can tell you is that moment in time showed me what my father, who my father really was. Yes, he was a disciplinarian. Yes, he was about character and integrity. Yes, he was about consequences. But more than all of that, my father loved me. And he wanted to walk with me through one of the greatest blunders of my life. The way I saw my dad after that was totally different. In fact, I was more rigorous in my obedience to my father after that event because I realized this father really is for me. He's on my side. And I'm truly sorry for those of you who didn't have a father like that because I know we're living in a different world now or a dad who modeled these things for you. But I just want to remind you that you do have a heavenly father. See, the reason you know your father is lacking because you have a benchmark. You know what a father is supposed to be like. And you only know that because you've been created in the image of your heavenly father. So you know in your life there's something missing. However, you and I have said that our lives are governed not by external circumstances, good or bad father, good or bad parenting, whatever it is. We realize that is part and partial to a fallen world. But we've said that we are governed by Romans 8, 28 and 29. We know that God works everything together for good. Somehow it all shapes. And remember the Greek word there is taking two things that are detrimental in and of themselves and God turns them around. He takes a disadvantage turns it into an advantage and uses it for his glory. So we are Romans 8.28 people. We're also told that God foreknew that one day we would make the decisions we make and he saw it coming and he decided to shape all that together and conform us to the image of his son. So in Christ, we have the son who has given everything. And in the father, we have a loving father who will never ever give up on us. Yes, he'll hold us accountable. Yes, he'll discipline us, but he never gives up on us and he's on our side. He's pulling for us. In fact, I like to put it to you like this. We all, as Christ followers, have a lifetime membership to the spiritual fitness center. <laughs> We're always gonna be long. However, we have the most awesome personal trainer that you could ever have. Now that leads us to the fifth resolution and our resolutions that we're making as we attempt to turn these external circumstances into wins, gains, victories, extraordinary victories. And I, I wanna ask you if you've, ever, if you've ever been tempted, if you ever felt like just sitting down as you take introspection of your life and you just wanna cry. You know, you've heard all the sermons about the goodness of God, the fatherhood of God, and that he's doing and working things together. You've heard all that, but you're so overwhelmed by everything that God is doing and allowing in your life, you feel like you're under such enormous pressure that you just want to sit down somewhere in a corner and just start to weep. Well, resolution number five is for all of us because we move now from what God is doing in us. We're still there, but now we move into the, the fatherhood of God. I don't know of any other passage of scripture anywhere in the Old Testament that is a better example of God 
loving a man. And resolution number five goes like this. God will send you encouragement when you grow afraid and weary or faint-hearted. God will send you encouragement, always send you encouragement at that time when you're on that line, when you grow weary and afraid. Gideon, if you know the story, is facing 135,000 Midianite warriors. When this whole thing started, he had 32,000 men because we haven't talked about this yet. He had blown the trumpet over in chapter six to call the other tribes in to increase the odds. Uh, God allowed him to do this, even though God knew he was going to sift the army, which is an amazing in and of itself. God had something else in mind. Gideon, through his conversations with God, is learning a different way. He's learning and experiencing the power and wisdom of God rather than his own power and wisdom. Had God not built Gideon's faith earlier in chapter six, there's no way Gideon would have sat by and agreed to allow God to sift his army. In fact, let me read to you what happened in Judges 6, verse 33 and 34. All the Midianites, Amalekites, and other Eastern peoples joined forces and crossed over the Jordan and camped in the valley of Jezreel. Then the spirit of the Lord came on Gideon and he blew a trumpet, summoning the Abyssalites to follow him. He sent messengers throughout Manasseh, calling them to arms and also into Asher, Zebulun, and Naphtali so that they too went up to meet them. So these are all tribes of Israel. Gideon's trying to bolster his numbers. Now, the question is, if you notice in the text, God's the one who told him to blow the trumpet. So why would God tell him to blow the trumpet and call the other tribes knowing that he's later gonna send them home anyway? And here's, this is a good lesson. Number one, God is building Gideon's trust in baby steps. Gideon's not ready to hear that God is going to sift his army. So God operates under Gideon's present understanding. He's being patient and guiding him along the way. The second thing is God knows in his foreknowledge, in his omniscience, that 300 men, some of them are going to come from these tribes uh, to which Gideon has blown the trumpet and called them together. So now Gideon's faith has grown. His trust in God has grown throughout the course of these events And through various experiences with God, he's now ready to obey the hard words. So an already ill-equipped and outmanned army, God sifts the army, 22,000 becomes, sorry, 32,000 becomes 22,000 through a fear test. And then 22,000 becomes 300 eventually through a seriousness test, 300 versus 135,000, 300 versus 135,000. 32,000 becomes 22,000, 22,000 becomes 10,000, 10,000 becomes 300. Now the sifting is complete and the day of the battle is drawing near. We're getting closer. And you'll remember we said that God finds it essential to strip everything away from you that you depend on other than him. So he's not only got to sift Gideon's army, what does he do but sift Gideon's arsenal, his artillery. And He brings Gideon to a meeting and says, you know, I'm not going to give you swords and javelins and spears. I'm not going to give these kind of things to these Bedouin people. He's saying, instead, I'm going to give you trumpets, clay jars, and torches. And the only way 300 men could defeat 135,000 with torches, clay jars, and their voice is if God is involved. Now, you're Gideon. How you doing? The Midianites, verse 12 of chapter 7. The Amalekites and all the other Eastern peoples had settled in the valley, thick as locusts. Their camels could no more be counted than the sand on the seashore. So you're Gideon and you're here. (laughs) You got 300 men with no artillery and you're looking over the valley. Remember the, the, the closest, the proximity there, Gideon is able to look over and see massive Midianites 
They look like locusts in the valley. You ever seen locusts? I mean, there's no empty space between them. And I, I'm reminded of what I think would have happened to John 11 when Jesus approached the tomb of Lazarus and all those people standing by and Jesus raises his hand and say, come forth, okay? So you can imagine, it took a little while for Lazarus to come forth. I mean, it, it takes a while. And so I can imagine, I've always said, it's like a tennis match. They're looking at Jesus, Jesus saying, come forth. And they're looking, you know, what's gonna happen here? I mean, is there anything really gonna happen? I mean, we're talking about a guy rising from the dead after being in the grave four days, which in the Israeli mind or the Jewish mind was impossible. Too late, he's already in the presence of wherever he is and he's not coming back. So I imagine this kind of tennis match to Jesus, you know, then to the, the stone and then back to Jesus and then to the stone. And we're wondering what's gonna happen. Gideon's in this valley and I think he's looking at his 300 men, a, a bunch of farmers and with no weaponry and he's looking at them. Then he's looking over to the valley and he sees these Midianite warriors and he's overwhelmed as you would be. He sees this mass of people and this 300 helpless little bunch. Now, God is omniscient. He knows what Gideon is experiencing. So God is going to ask Gideon an interesting question. He's going to say, Gideon, are you afraid? Now, wait just a minute. You just sent 10,000 men home because they were afraid. And now you're asking Gideon if he's afraid. Are you afraid? What's going on here? I would think if Gideon says yes, God's going to say, pack up your duds, pack up your tents, go home. Now, Gideon knows at this point that God is going to give him the victory. He's confident of that. But what Gideon does not know yet is God's strategy for the victory. And God is preparing him. Preparing him for what? <laughs> Gideon's going to be the attacker, the aggressor with 300 men. Now you imagine 300 men chasing 135,000. You don't take 300 men and attack 135,000. You hide in the caves, maybe behind the bushes and hope that things turn out well. Gideon is ready, ready for battle, but he does not realize yet he's going to be the aggressor. So God prepares him. So here's what we read in verse 10. If you are afraid to attack, ah, if you are afraid to attack, go down to the enemy camp with your servant Pura and listen to what they're saying. Afterward, you'll be encouraged to attack the camp. So our heavenly father knows, this is important. Our heavenly father knows there are times we grow so discouraged. We're trying to trust that he's building something special in us. We're trying to obey the hard word, but it seems to work out at least for the moment for the worst. I mean, we're doing the right thing and bad things keep happening. We're responding with faith and bad things keep happening. It doesn't seem to be turning out the way we had expected. We're trying to give God the victory and the glory for everything that happens. We're allowing him to strip us of our idols, but we're so tired and weary. We're just so tired. We want to sit down and cry. When we see the odds are heavily stacked against us, when we see what we have here and what's over there, we think about the abuse that we've suffered at the hands of others in the course of our lives. We think about the setbacks that we've experienced through the course of our lives, the relationship wounds that just keep mounting up. I think most of us in our humanity start thinking, well, maybe, and this is natural, maybe I'm kidding myself. Maybe God has left me alone to fend for myself. Maybe there is no God. Maybe Pastor Jeff is just a, a good cheerleader coach, but the fact of the matter is his words do not represent reality. Maybe I am on my own. Maybe everything really is meaningless and there's no God that's watching from a distance. There's no God involved in my life. Life stinks and then you die. Maybe the bumper sticker's right. And depression sets in. Now here's what happens. 
I, get, I don't know of a better example, Old Testament narrative, of God who is loving a man who has grown weary, faint-hearted, and is disheartened. God said, Gideon, array your, your army for battle. And then he says, Gideon, do I sense a little fear in you? Well, God, yeah. I mean, to tell you the truth, it's 450 to one. I mean, I've, I've done everything you've asked me to do and things seem to get worse. Things seem to not improve. God says, I understand. Oh, this is beautiful. Get your servant Pura. Do what I tell you to do. I want you to go down to the enemy or the outskirts of the enemy camp. I want you to get as close as you can. And I want you to hear something. Now, remember, there are thousands of tents in the valley because there's 135,000 warriors. But God leads Gideon, oh, this is beautiful, to the specific tent where God had sent a Midianite, a specific dream. And the contents of that dream are so specifically designed by God in a way that a Midianite and Gideon both can understand. The dream is quite amazing. And these were people who considered or place great worth in dreams. A Midianite says to his friend, as Gideon and his servant Pura, listen close to the enemy camp. And the Midianite says, I had this crazy dream. A loaf of barley bread came crashing down the hill, hit this tent, threw it up in the air, and the tent came crashing down. And his friend says, what do you suppose that means? And in verse 14, his friend responds, this can be nothing other than the sword of Gideon, son of Joash, the Israelite. God has given Midianites, the Midianites, and the whole camp into his hands. Now, if you're like me, and I, I, I have gone back to this passage, I have read commentary after commentary. I've even gone to Jewish rabbis and their view of the Old Testament. I've gone to scholars from the Messianic world of, of, uh, or, the, or the world of Messianic Jews to try to discover. You go wherever you can. What on earth is happening here? How can you get this interpretation from this dream? Is there something I don't see? And the answer is nobody knows. Nobody knows. How is it that this barley bread rolling down and upending the tent up in the air means that God has given the Midianites into the hand of Gideon? The point is, it doesn't matter. Gideon was so awe or awed by what he saw and heard. You talk about God's sovereign timing. He leads Gideon to the right camp, to the right tent, the thousands, 135,000 warriors, to the right tent, to the right dreamer, to the right interpreter, to hear the right words. And Gideon now knows I'm going to be victorious. Gideon is so pumped. Do you know what he does? Now, remember where we are. He and Pura, how close do you have to be to the enemy to hear a dream in a tent? You're on the enemy territory. You're right there. And yet the Bible tells us in verse 15, Gideon is so fired up. When Gideon heard the dream and its interpretation, he bowed down and worshiped. He returned to the camp of Israel, called out, get up, the Lord has given the Midianite camp into your hands. It's a, remember, it's a, it's, a, it's a nighttime. And Gideon's so fired up, he said, let's go. He's not even gonna wait for God. Let's go, let's go fight him right now. 300, let's go attack them. And God has to settle him down, I would, I would suppose, and say, okay, here are your instructions. This is so awesome. Pura and Gideon are right next to the enemy camp and they break out into worship. Now, here's something else really cool. The typical Hebrew word for worship is shaka, which is uh, like proskuneo in the New Testament, the Greek word, which is kind of like the, the reverence bending down on your knee and thanking God. But there's another Hebrew word, halal, 
or halal, which is the Hebrew word for crazy, exuberant praise, okay? You're dancing through the streets without clothes on like David did. Well, he had some clothes on, but well, I don't know. He's naked in the street. He's so excited. He's so thankful for God. He's just bearing everything. And then you've got Shabbat, which is the Hebrew word for loud praise. The word used here, folks, in Judges is a word that is exuberant praise. Now you think about this. This would not be a good time to bring out the instruments and start praising God. You're right next to the enemy camp. If they find you, they're going to kill you. Gideon doesn't care. And neither does his servant Purah. They just start praising God. They just start singing and dancing and praising God. You know, our team is red hot. Your team ain't got diddly squat. Who knows what they say, but they're so fired up and so excited. It's so beautiful. What happens? They don't care because now they know. They believe whatever happened in that dream, something happened in Gideon where he believed, okay, the victory's ours. God has given it to us. But the bigger point is that this is such a beautiful example of how God loves a man in his time of doubt and confusion. It's how God demonstrates this act of kindness, this sensitivity to a man who had grown faint-hearted, this unconditional love to a man who was willing to be obedient, and his sovereign power at a very strategic moment, at the right place, at the right time, to encourage Gideon in the midst of the battle. There are a few things more powerful than hearing the right word at the right time when you're about to give up, and God knows that. I can't tell you how many times in my ministry that I was willing or ready to give up, maybe move on to another geographical location, somehow thinking that my problems wouldn't follow me. They always do. We had a gentleman that most of us around here call Pastor Phil, but he would meet me often backstage before I would preach. And I remember this specific occasion. I was really, really down and really worried. And I came back for the prayer time and Pastor Phil put his hand on my shoulder and said, I know you're under a lot of strain and pressure and I know what you're dealing with. And I'm thinking, no, you don't. But then he started to tell me things about myself that there's no way he could know unless God had revealed it to him. He was special like that. And I was in awe that God was using this pastor to speak words of truth into my life. When I was in New Zealand, many of my friends had told me not to go and start a church in New Zealand. It's post-Christian. It's very difficult. You'll work hard for years and years with very little success or converts. And of course, that just drove me to want to be more successful. And there was a runner in the country by Allison Rose. She's a famous New Zealand runner. She had won the Boston and the New York marathons in the same year, quite a gifted runner. She had come to the church that we planted in the early days and we just didn't seem to be making headway. And one day she calls and said, hey, would you like to go on a run with me now? A run with me, with Allison Rowe. She's just trotting and I'm sprinting, trying to keep up. But at the end of the run, she goes, you know, I wanted to ask you to come on a run with me because just wanted to tell you, don't be discouraged. You've changed my life and the life of my family. And I'm sure there are many more lives to come. And that just kind of gave me the right word at the right time and I think, I know that God knows when you're on that edge, when he's going to do his work and he, we need the encouragement. It doesn't mean he's going to stop his pressure. He's going to still squeeze you till the good stuff comes out. It doesn't mean that you're going to know everything that he's doing. You're not sovereign. You're not omnipotent or omniscient. God is large and in charge. It, he's not going to leave us alone. He's going to pursue us. He is the hound of heaven. But you know what? In that moment when we need him most, he always shows up. In the book of Job, I love what happens in chapter 42 and verse five through six. It's as if Job 
is pondering the fact? Is God near me? God comes and delivers a message to Job and reminds him, I am the creator designer. I am able to take all this chaos in your life and bring beauty pattern and design out of it. If God had stopped there, it would be just an intellectual argument, but he doesn't. After he comes to him as creator, designer, he then comes to him as revealer and comforter. So much so that Job is humbled and he says, wow, before, remember my ears had hurt. I thought I knew you, but I didn't. Now my eyes see you and I know who you are. You are a comforter and revealer. You've been listening to Today with Jeff Vines. Thanks for joining us. Next time, we'll bring you the rest of this message from Pastor Jeff. Your Heavenly Father's pulling for you and knows you're in over your head. He knows that you're limited in your understanding of everything that's going on. He knows you're outmatched by the circumstances of this world. He knows you're outmatched by an opponent who wants to pin you and have you surrender and give up. While you're in this battle, oh, Jesus is standing at the right hand of the Father. He's up in his chair, giving you a prevailing presence, cheering you on. You can listen to more messages like this. Just search for Today with Jeff Vines wherever you get your podcasts. You make me Today. 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 Today with Jeff Fines. Thanks for taking time to listen to this audio on demand from Vision Christian Media. To find out more about us, go to vision.org.au.